up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. Today is a big day around here, around here, like I work in some big complex with lots of people or something. Yeah, big day around here in the house with my wife and the dog. Regardless of where it's at, it's a big day because any day you can announce you got a book out in print and in digital format and yes, soon in audible format, although it'll still be a couple weeks. Well, any day you can say that, it's a big day. I know. Let's have some music or something. Okay, that wasn't exactly the kind of music I was looking for, but nevertheless, you get the idea. We're celebrating today this new book called The Hope and Melvin of Humanity and Other Surprising Short Stories. And what we're going to do on today's episode is to continue to unpack the theme, the motif, the idea of story to try to get uh, a better handle at it and try to understand the beauty and the nuance of it. So thank you so much for being with me today. And uh, really, before you do anything, you should probably put this on pause and go to Amazon or whatever favorite digital bookstore retailer you like to use and pick the book up. It's pretty easy. Just search for Hope, Melvin, Humanity. Those are enough keywords to find it. And uh, that way you can know what we're talking about. If you want to wait and listen to this episode first, as we talk about story, you're more than welcome to do so. So let's talk about story a little bit today. Story, it doesn't ignore the facts. What happens with story is that that it winds up enhancing the facts to the point where you don't even care about facts because facts don't make the world go around. It's story. It's story, man. Stories make the world go around. We're not talking about a brown-skinned man from 2,000 years ago, still today, because of systematic theology. No, it's because he told stories, really good stories that stuck with us. And better yet, he lived a story. And I happen to think that telling fictional stories that are informed by the story that he lived can be really powerful. Fictional stories have the freedom and the burden of playing with the things they make up as if they were facts so that they may reveal the things that facts cannot do, namely, get the truth and accuracy. And any writer who happens also to be a believer, which of course is one of my particular challenges, must have the freedom to remember that the story they believe in, the story that they believe is most accurate, it's as well as being accurate, also a story. And the way the gospel story or stories, because there are four of them, are written in narrative form in the middle of a whole host of other stories from the Hebrew tradition which some of them, honestly, can we just be honest, they defy belief, which puts one in the position of trying to understand the Jesus story on the ground between truth and lies, between poetry and history, which is where story lives. Well, in the large scheme of things, the way it's written down, the way these gospel stories come to us, it doesn't help us because it's in the middle of all of that stuff, in the middle of where truth lives. I mean, the Greek that it's written in isn't even really like the nicest, most official Greek. It's more, we might say, a serviceable Greek. You know, the same vernacular and emphasis and inflection that the local 
people down at the bazaar, at the trading post in the ancient Near East, might be using to like trade for chickens or buy new farm tools or get a new jar of olives. Yeah, the story is written in that kind of language. And not just once. The story is written four times over with different outlines and shadows and highlights and emphasis each time. Different enough that it leads the intellectually honest to ask, wait a minute, are we even, at sometimes, are we even talking about the same events here, the same people, the same story? They're not sermons or philosophies or PowerPoints or arguments that are happening in these stories, though, unfortunately, they have launched a thousand sermons, philosophies, PowerPoints, and arguments. No, it's story. And it's written in a way that requires the reader to get involved, almost like choose your own adventure, pick your own ending kind of stories. This story requires, although requires isn't exactly the right word, I think this story invites Yeah, it invites you to get as involved as you want to get involved. One of the most intriguing things about the gospel stories to me is that ultimately they're also about a storyteller. So this is story. These are stories about a storyteller, (laughs) which is crazy. Within their stories is all his stories. Yeah, some very weird stories, some head spinning stories, plots and characters that turned everything upside down kind of stories. They're stories that, by and large, show rather than tell. They invite rather than demand. And they're planted deep within us, only to grow and change us from the inside out, sometimes taking years, decades. Well, really, I guess when you think about it, millennia, right? Because that's how long they've been around, growing, expanding, insisting on beauty and grace and mercy in the midst of the very mundane, normal receipts for the farming tools and the chicken dung and the broken bottles of olives and all of our algorithmic-mediated tribalistic zero-sum games and media groups and political groups and religious groups and on and on. The people of the book, that's how we used to be known. The people of the book are not the people of the book because of facts. I mean, come on. Prodigal son? Never lived. The Good Samaritan? Fictional. Old lady searching for that last coin? Or that dude looking for the one lost sheep while the 99 hung out back at the church? Nope, none of them were actual people. And yet the stories have endured, more than endured. They've changed us. In other words, they're not real. But man, are they true. It strikes me as I'm talking about this, that it took great risk to trust that this story would endure. It took great risk to trust that in the middle of the reality that we all construct, which is always constructed in and between two or more people, in open and relational theology, we simply refer to it as a relational universe. In Girardian thinking, we refer to it as interdividuality. I love that made-up word that Girard and some of his friends came up with. So in the middle of this relational construct, it took great trust and humility and patience to allow the truth of this story to emerge in the way that it has. I suppose Jesus could have acted with more power and authority. He could have leveraged that whole angle on getting to the truth like most people did and do, like the religious elite before him and after him. But he didn't go in that direction. 
The story doesn't go in that direction. Trust, humility, patience, these are not hallmarks of the elite, the rich, the powerful, the overly religious. But they are hallmarks of healthy human beings. And it seems like the story at every turn is trying to highlight how to be a healthy human being. Again, it's a risk. It's a risk to empower humanity because people obviously can make mistakes. Consequences hang in the balance. The mimetic contagion is real and our choices matter. Now, uncertainty could have been removed and can be removed if we have a divine being who can step in at any moment with unilateral power and fix everything. And of course, a lot of Christians think that that's what we have, or at the very least think that in the end, when everything you know has to blow up in this divine preordained apocalypse, that God will step in and fix everything. But as my friend Tom Ward often asks, if God has the power to overcome evil at the end, you got to wonder why God doesn't use that power to overcome evil right now is a very good question. It's caused a lot of people to sit and reflect for lengthy amounts of times. And then there's, there's other related problems that go along with that. Like if God has that kind of power, which again, many people think that he does, and he's not stepping in right now, what exactly does that mean? I think it's safe to say that this kind of thinking has led a lot of people to stick with the status quo, which has led to harm, because then people can easily make the deduction that God doesn't want things to change. And even more so, if God wants the stuff to stay as it is in this certain caste system where some people are benefiting and others are being hurt, if that's what God wants, then it actually could be construed as being sinful to try to overcome evil in the world. Because again, that's what God wants. So you'd have to be going against God to try to change the divine ordered hierarchy. That's problematic. So telling the story in this way, in such fragile approaches, with so much uncertainty at risk, elevating humanity and not putting God in a position of being like this really super superhero, it really puts our perspective about God in a fragile position. And that's why so many people, myself included, appreciate this story so much because it's risky. I mean, it could be that in our effort to increase the value of the human, we wind up decreasing the value of the divine. And this has long been a criticism of those in the dominant ecclesiological communities. And it is something to consider for real. And yet, if we point out the weakness of a parent who raises children incapable of making decisions on their own, Why wouldn't we point out the weakness of a God who acts in similar ways? And if we honor a parent who encourages and helps children make loving, healthy, independent decisions, why wouldn't we honor a God who does the same thing? It's possible, when you think about this, it's possible that empowering humanity may be the best way to esteem divinity. It's risky, but that might be the case. A risky theology allows for the possibility of a God uninterested in codependent relationships, a God less interested in saying, bow down and worship me, and more interested in a God who says, hey, come follow me.
is a God that's unfettered from presuppositions of power and control, a God unshackled from unbiblical and Christian omnipotence. What this kind of thinking does is it points us towards a God who might actually be free, a God who's free to make choices, to differentiate, to mark out boundaries, to let go of boundaries, to forgive others, to forgive herself, to create new and life-giving patterns, and all that to say that that's a very interesting God. Risky, but very interesting. And the brown-skinned man who lived a couple of thousand years ago that many of us, I started to say all of us, obviously not all of us, but that many of us are still trying to organize our lives around. He took that route. He told stories about a God like that. He risked the God in his stories. And the thing that he organized his life around is not a deity of impatience, power, and hierarchy. I mean, there is hierarchy, but it's more like higher anarchy. It's subversive. It's, it's upside down. Well, it's, it's just risky. Nevertheless, that's how the story comes to us. And while for Muslims, the Quran is God's direct action in the world, it's his presence and voice textually realized. For Christians, the story points to God's presence. It isn't God's presence itself. For Christians, the son of Mary, who grows up to be a homeless, powerless man who is executed in a state-sponsored act of violence, that person He is the point, not the words talking about him, defining him, systematizing him. I hope you can see that. It's so important, which is why story is so important. So yeah, we need to use our creativity and art and ingenuity and personality to tell stories. Which leads me back to my stuff. I'm certainly not trying to elevate my art and stories and personality and creativity to the level of truth one finds weaving its way through the biblical narrative. For sure not. All I'm saying is that story is powerful. And these stories that I've written about, and others that I'm in the middle of writing about, because frankly, I couldn't include them all in this book, these stories were the way that I was working through what I thought was going on with very real things in my life. Like when I was being shown the exit by my former denomination, Or what was happening? What was potentially going on with metaphysical things or personal psychological things as I felt the weight and the grief of losing a child? Or what kind of truth was I identifying as emerging as the entire construct of my atonement theology literally just convulsed and fell apart? Or what was going on with the beauty and the grace, and the love, even in the midst of friends and family condemning me over some of my theological changes and shifts. So yes, all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm writing these fictional stories to try to figure out what it is that I am believing. Well, I could keep going on and on. I really, I guess the best thing to do is for you to go purchase the book. Okay, honestly, The best thing to do would be for you to organize the story of your life around the story of love. And what I hope is that these few little stories that are written from a mimetic and open and relational perspective will help you do that. They will help you organize your life around the story of love 
along the journey of whatever your particular story is. And as always, don't forget, you may be experiencing a lot of pain and trouble and problems, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily doing something wrong. Although, again, for sure, there are things that we have to do differently in our lives and we all make changes, you know, mid-route. But really more likely what it means is that you're in the middle of a good story because good stories take tension. There are no good stories without problems to overcome. So you, my friend, are in the middle of a good story. Don't give up. Thanks for buying the book. And you know, if you want to go next level, what will help me as much as anything is if you could just leave a good review. Now, if you don't like the stories, uh, I guess just keep reading because surely sooner or later, something in there is going to catch your attention. And then you can find a sentence or a paragraph or something that inspires you at some level such that you could write a good review. (laughs) That'd be helpful. And as always, thank you to my Patreon supporters. I mean, thanks to Derek and Cindy and Maggie and Faith and David and Mike and Naomi and Chad and Mark and Nancy and Jason and Terry and Nancy and Becca and Justin and Emily and Amy and Biblio-Becca, probably my favorite Patreon name. Some of you guys need to up your Patreon name game. So I like that. And also thank you to Jonna. Well, that's nice. That's nice when your wife is a Patreon supporter as well. You should get a wife like that if you don't have one. All right. Thanks for buying the book, everyone. Thanks for being on the journey with me. Have a great day.